0: Our reading today comes from Genesis two, verses 21 through 25. Please give attention to the reading of God's word. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and humbled by the fact that you would call us into your presence today to hear your word preached. And as we hear just that, Father, would you open up the hearts and um, minds of those who are sitting here to hear your word and would you send your spirit to enliven us and to awaken us who sleep that we might um, have Christ shine upon us. Um, let us see that wonderful truth that though our relationships are broken and marred by sin, yet we have become one with Christ and may that truth um, sound to the very depths of our soul and it's in his name that we pray amen amen thank you Christian
1: well we've all been there you know the moment very well some of you have sat here in this room when those doors in the back have swung open And the angelic bride steps out into the sanctuary, making her way slowly to that bundle full of nerves at the front of the church, dressed in a tuxedo. And once she arrives and her father and mother agree to give her away, the father kisses her on the cheek and then sits down in the front row. And then the minister in some traditions will ask that somewhat nerve wracking and perplexing question If there be any here who can give a reason why this man or this woman should not be joined in marriage, speak now or forever hold your peace. And everyone in that moment waits with polite, Anticipation, hoping that no one will say anything except a man's voice in the back. Says, how do you know? He clutches the pew in front of him and rises to his feet and in a sincere tone asks, I don't mean any disrespect, but how do you know that this marriage... It's going to work. People stare at the floor nervously. Others glare at the man with indignation. But as he asks the question, many in the room begin to have answers to that question that fill their heads. The maid of honor says, They're in love. Love will conquer all. A mutual friend says, compatibility, of course, that's going to do it. This marriage is a lock. They are perfect for each other. Their youth pastor, who have known them for many years and knows the families that they come from, says it all comes down to the parenting. They come from good stock. They're going to be just fine. And Uncle Bob straightens his tie and he says, do you have any idea how good their portfolio is? Do you know the money that they're bringing into this marriage? And did you know that money is one of the major stressors that divides any marriage? They're in a good position. The best man, somewhat frustrated by the question, said, Look, they both go to church and profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've read all of the right premarital counseling material. Let's get this show on the road. The pastor, feeling a little pressure to save the service this dearly beloved we are gathered here in the presence of the lord and it is he who will make this marriage work now if some of you have read dave harvey's wonderful little book when sinners say i do you know that this is the fictional story that he actually opens that wonderful work with to raise the kind of questions that he actually wants to address in the midst of this book on marriage. Because he knows that that question, how do we know that this thing is going to work, is a question that so many of us have and even wonder about on the day of our own marriage and as we get into married life and see others get married. What is it that's going to really make this marriage work? And all of those variety of answers that we heard from the maid of honor and the best man, from the youth pastor, from Uncle Bob, and are all answers that are good and have measures of truth to them. But it was the pastor who said it's the Lord that's going to make this marriage work that gets to the very center of what marriage is all about. But to understand the meaning of what making marriage work Means. We've got to dive in here in Genesis chapter 2 to the purposes for why God made marriage in the first place. Before we can really answer the question, how does it work? We have to answer the question, what is it for? What is it actually designed for? How is it that God has made marriage and what has He wanted it to accomplish? Well, with that question in mind, I want to look at this passage with you in four different ways this morning. I want you to see, first of all, the need for marriage as it's displayed in the context of this passage. But then I want you to see the provision for marriage, which we see actually taking place in the midst of this marriage. Thirdly, I want you to see the wonder that's intended for the life of marriage that we see in Adam's response. And then fourthly, I want you to see the purpose of marriage as is clearly outlined in the final two verses of our reading. So I want to start with you in this need for marriage. Why did we need this thing from the beginning? Two weeks ago, we reflected on Genesis chapter 2. We look together at verses 18 to 20 and we learn something very shocking in that passage. We learn that there was something not good about creation. Now when we read that in verses 18 of Genesis chapter 2 and then again noting that in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 2 it's jarring to us as readers to read not good in relationship to the creation because if we've been reading from the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 we've seen that the benediction or the blessing of good the approval and the acclaim of God over everything that he has made has been the drumbeat of Genesis chapter 1. He gets to the end of the creation days and he says, it is good. It is good. It is good. In fact, he gets to the end of Genesis chapter 1 and he takes it up a notch. He said, it is very good as he comes to the conclusion of day 6. But as he gets to Genesis 2.18, we see that he tells us that something is not good about creation. Which begs the question, what is not good? And he says very plainly that it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. Now two weeks ago, just to set the context for what it is that we're jumping into today, we said there were two primary reasons For why it's not good for man to be alone. And if I could put it in this language. One is a being reason. Meaning in his person it's not good for man to be alone. And the other is a calling reason. Or with regards to his doing. So we could say being and doing. Are two reasons. Why it's not good for man to be alone. The first is this being reason. Or this person reason. We said that God himself is a trinity, that he is three persons and yet he is one God from all eternity, from the past to the present and the future, this God has within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always been in community. We might rightly say God has never been alone. He's always had the eternal fellowship of himself. Within the three persons of the Trinity. And if Adam here, who has been made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26-28, is alone in creation, is there a problem? There's a big problem. Adam can image God in the way that he's designed to image God if he is alone. Because God in his very person is never alone. And so when God sees Adam alone in Genesis 2.18, he says, this is not good. This is not reflective of who it is that I am. But there's a second reason, and this has to do with Adam's call, his doing. In Genesis 1.28, we read that man is to be fruitful and multiply, and he is to fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, And over every living thing that creeps on the earth. In that instruction from the Lord, he's taking Adam, if you can visualize it with me and go there for just this moment. He says, Adam, I want you to stand on the edge of the ocean and I want you to look in. And as you see the fish swim up, I want you to know I've given dominion over them. And Adam, then I want you to look up into the sky and I want you to see the birds that are flying by. And I want you to know that I've placed you strategically as my vice regent over creation. And you have subduing dominion over them. And Adam, I want to take you out to the field and I want you to look at over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And I want you to know that I've given you dominion over them. Therefore, be fruitful and multiply because... You're going to need to create a lot of use in order to oversee this vast creation. You see, the calling of God in terms of our rulership, in terms of our subduing and dominion over creation, is inextricably tied with this command to be fruitful and multiply. Just as a company, when it's small, has maybe one or two employees... And then it grows a little bit and it hires a supervisor. And then it opens a branch office in another town. And as it opens a branch office in another town, it hires multiple more staff. And we see this multiplication, this fruitfulness. Why? Because more overseeing, more ruling, more subduing, more dominion is needed. In the very same way, God has said that we've been equipped to scale for the multiplication and the fruitfulness of the world and the character and the image of God. That's why we've been made. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but Adam's alone in this moment, which means that he doesn't come with all of the equipment necessary for that fruitful and multiplication to happen. He doesn't have all of the resources Within himself to be able to answer the call. Which means that Adam by design is dependent upon another to get done what he's been called to do. And so when God says it's not good for man to be alone. He's acknowledging right from the very beginning that there is a need for marriage. And so God in his care and in his love for Adam after naming the animals... No suitable helper is found. God gives provision for marriage. Now that's where we really pick it up here in verse 21 of the text that we're looking at this morning. And we see God in his compassion seeing this lonely, alone man who in his being can't reflect God. Who can't in his calling accomplish what God has called him to do. He provides for him a woman. And look at how it is written. He caused a deep sleep, we're told in verse 21, to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Mystery of mysteries, this beautiful passage. We see, I think we could argue, the beginning of medicine taking place here in verse 21. It's fascinating, isn't it? That the first medical event in all of human history happened before the fall. And the first surgical procedure that ever took place was done by God himself on the glorified humanity of Adam. It's absolutely fascinating. But if we pause to think about it, it makes perfect sense. Because when is it that we go in for surgery? Well, when something's wrong. And something is wrong. Not physically with Adam. God didn't hiccup in the midst of his creation of Adam, and he's going in to correct something that was awry. No, he's healing through the physical body the relational problem that Adam faces by being alone. And he, as the first anesthesiologist, if we can put it so, puts Adam into a divine sleep. It's the same language that's used of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 when we're told that a deep sleep falls upon Abram and God passes through the pieces of the covenant ceremony and he forges a covenant. With Abraham, that he will be his God and Abraham and him and his family will be his people. And that they through the generations will be God's blessed people who becomes the people of Israel. In similar fashion in Genesis chapter 2, God is in the process of forming what will be a marriage covenant. Not just the redemptive covenant that we see in Genesis 15, but what will be a marriage covenant. And so God is anesthesiologist. Puts Adam down and then God as surgeon removes from him that warm, moist rib. Full of the fluids of Adam, of his DNA, of his chemical makeup. And he takes that rib and is the basis for the formation of what will become another human being. Both in keeping with the substance of Adam, but different in terms of form and role and call. He shapes God as creator. He brings into being, we might argue, the highest of the glory of creation in physical form. He brings forth woman. Now this has significant implications. Implications that if you're with us in the next hour we'll jump into a little bit with regards to gender and sexuality. But let me just note two things that I think arises from this provision of marriage, this making of woman. The first thing is this, that woman is made of the same substance of man which speaks to her equality with man. That's what God is displaying for us. We've already seen in Genesis 1, 26-28 that God created man, male, and female. And in His image, He created them. But we're seeing that they're not of different materiality. They're not of different substance. They're of the same substance. And they are equal in terms of their dignity in the image of God. Now that makes perfect sense, friends. Let me just do a moment of theology with you. I want to ask you, is the Father more divine than the Son? Or is the Son more divine than the Holy Spirit? Or is the Holy Spirit more divine than the Father and the Holy Spirit? Just think quietly in your mind. Don't spout any heresy yet. They're equal. They're equal in their power and the glory. They're all in substance the same in terms of divine. But we're also told that in the Trinity the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And it was the Son of God, Jesus, who died on the cross, not the Father. It's the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer, not the Father. It's the Father who decrees, not the Holy Spirit. They all have roles. They're all distinct. They're all different persons. But they're equal in terms of their dignity, their glory, and their power. Don't you see when we begin to see the difference between a husband and a wife, when we see the difference between a male and a female, at the base of the provision of marriage is not this tension between, but this harmony in the glorious equality and difference of which God has made us, not for ourselves, but to reflect his glory and to reflect who he is. We see that woman is made of the same substance of man which speaks to her equality with man. And we see that though the same substance, she is a different person from man. Amen? Amen. She is a different person from man. Man is a different person from woman. We are not created identical, though we are created equal. That is incredibly important for our understanding, not only of how it is that God has designed us, but how it is that God himself in his own person in the Trinity is designed. This is why Matthew Henry says this beautifully. It is a little colloquial, a little parochial, but listen listen to this. This is beautiful. He says, the woman was not made out of man's head in order to top him, nor was she made out of his feet in order to be trampled on by him. But she was made out of his side to be equal with him, to be under his arm in order to be protected by him and to be near to his heart in order to be beloved. There's so much to puzzle and to reflect on and to to conversate about in that glorious quote by Matthew Henry. That's why you might notice at the back of your bulletin and you're taking the message home for you home fellowship group leaders and participants and for you families. I've asked you to ponder that quote a little bit. What does it mean and what does it look like in your own marriage and in your own relationship to live into these glorious truths that are being... Given to us and set forward for us here in Genesis chapter 2. So I want you to see the need for marriage. I want you to see the provision for what Adam needed in marriage. But I want you to now see the wonder of the wedding. I want you to see the wonder of the wedding. Did you catch the language at the end of verse 22? It says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought brought her to the man. Isn't that beautiful? I want you to just go with me for just a minute into the text. And this is real and historical. It's recounting for us how it is that God has done things. And we're getting to the origin of the nature of things. So it's appropriate that in our minds and our hearts we would envision it as historical and real. And we should go there and tied with the scriptures and its teachings. But also imaginatively. Thinking reflectively about this moment. Adam has just named all of the animals. He's gotten to the end of the naming of all of the animals. And in verse 21 of the text, we're told no suitable helper was was found for him. He had seen that all of the animals had suitable helpers. And he didn't have a suitable helper. And he was being brought into that moment to the recognition of his need. And then God puts him into surgical sleep. He at this point is a little drowsy. He's waking up from the the stupor. And God comes to him and he says, listen, Adam, I've got one more creature for you to name. We we had named them all, but there's one more while you've been asleep. There's been one more that I really want you to name. I'm really interested on what you're going to name this one. And Von Rod says, it's as if God himself, like the father of the bride escorts the woman down the aisle to Adam. Here in the hint of the text that he brought her to the man. He's giving her to the man. He, the origin, the true father of the bride, the true giver of the gift of woman to man, comes in this idyllic marriage ceremony. This perfect one, woman, stunning in pre-fallen glory, Freshly formed from the Creator's hands, arm in arm with her Father God, is brought before the man who was made for her, the woman who was made for the man. And when he sees her, it's pretty clear. He can hardly believe his eyes. His rep- response is one of soaring joy. He says, At last, do you feel it? <laughs> At last. I've been waiting for this, finally. That's the sense of relief, that sense of culmination and hope that this could be true of him as it's been true of all of the other animals. At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I was pondering this this week. Do you realize that this is the very first recording of human speech in all of human history. I really have never really reflected on that. If you were asked what was the first words ever recorded in all of human history, you know what they were? They were a love poem from the mouth of Adam to God in the midst of the response of the gift of a woman. That was the first recorded words. That the Lord gives us of human speech. And isn't it remarkable? It's not narrative. It's not factual. It, it's not perfunctory. It's not taking care of business. It's not, hey, can you get me a cup of coffee? It's a poem. It's, the, it's an ascended language. This moment requires not merely a statement of fact or the telling of a prose, this moment required a poem. And not just any poem, it required a love poem. A love poem to his beloved, the bone of his bones and the flesh of his flesh. The word here for man in this context is not the Adam from the ground that's used earlier in Genesis 1, it's the word ish. And the word for woman is Isha literally means man and out of man comes woman. He sees her as an extension of himself. That we could rightfully argue that he's not himself apart from her and she's not herself apart from him. That they are, as it were, the same flesh. They are of one substance together. That's why John Calvin, reflecting on this particular a uh, verse of Scripture says, now at length, Adam says, I have obtained for myself a suitable companion who is part of the substance of my own flesh and in whom I behold, as it were, another self. Before there was Byron and Shelley. Before there was Coleridge or Wordsworth. Before there was Shakespeare. Shakespeare. There was Adam who was writing the love poem for the woman in which he was made to be with. Do you see, there's been a need for marriage and an ache in the heart of man for a fitting and suitable helper. There's a provision by God in his kindness for the creation of woman who is the final, we might call the apex of God's created glory. And it is here where we see the wonder of the wedding. The picture where the two come together in what will be described here in verse 24 as holy matrimony. That leads us to the purpose of marriage, our final point this morning. Look at verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now if you can hear Moses, he's writing this to the people of Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness headed on their way to the promised land. He's speaking to them about the origins of where things came from. Both life and existence but also this fundamental building block of human society known as marriage. And as he gets to this point and as the father of the bride, God himself, gives away Eve to Adam, he pauses... In the midst of the story, and says, by the way, therefore, by the way, this is why a man leaves his family, his father and his mother, and he holds fast to his wife. And this is why the two become one flesh. It's almost like a stop in the text, and it becomes a little holy commentary. Here's where all of this marriage stuff came from. This is what was going on at the beginning. Here was... All of the movements of God and all of His intentions at display. And I want you to see, here is where the leaving and the cleaving gets its meaning. Now, that language of leaving and cleaving, or the leaving and holding fast, as we see here in the text, is covenantal language. It's the language of saying, I once was committed over here. But now I am making new covenantal commitments to this person And that requires that I leave behind the life that I've always known in order to join with the new life that I will get to know and grow into with my beloved. That's the language. Now, the reason that's important is that's different from the way we tend to think about marriage. We tend to think about marriage as I'm going to take my life and I'm going to join it with your life and we're going to have our life. But that's actually not what the text is teaching us. The text is teaching us that marriage is such a radical institution, so unique among all of what God has established, different from father and and, and mother relationships or parent-child or any other relationships that we might have in the world. This relationship, if you enter into it, it's not that you take your otherwise pretty good life and bring it into relationship with another. It's that you're actually leaving your whole life behind in order to join with a new life that you have never known before. And we know this is true. Those of us who are actually married here in this room and have experienced both the grace and the pain of what it means to be married because we've tried to bring our otherwise fairly happy life into relationship with our spouse and we have found out that it doesn't work quite that easily. That the life that we lived previously was a lot more selfish than we realized that it was. And though we thought we were a pretty both good-looking and easy-to-get-along-with chap, um, we are much harder to get along with than we realized. And that all of the freedoms that I once had and all of the independency that I once felt, I'm saying goodbye to it. And, And now I'm going to build a relationship with someone who is always going to be there. Always. I have to think about them. I have to take into account their thoughts. I have to serve them. I have to care for them. I have to live my life in relationship to theirs. In fact, the language here of of they're going to become one flesh is the spirit of I'm no longer my own. In fact, I don't even have a life by myself. I'm just half of a life that we share together. We are two halves of a whole that makes one flesh. Now, the question becomes, well, if that's the case, if this is what marriage is all about, this is the design of marriage, why does anybody ever get married? I mean, this is so entangling. This is so restrictive. Why would somebody jump into it? It, Well, You who've walked down that path know it's a little bit like a moth to a flame. It's a, uh, so help me God, I'm going to do this it's a, i can't help it but i've got to do it but my goodness why am i doing it kind of feeling i've told you before it's when i talk to the the groom the, the night before and the day of the wedding if i if i ask him hey how are, how are you doing are you nervous and he says no i'm worried about him you don't understand what you're doing now of course he doesn't understand what he's doing there's no idea There's no way for him to understand what he's doing. He can't gain the knowledge he's going to gain in any other way but to move into it. We always talk about it as I wish I knew now what I knew then. But of course you can't know now what you knew then. There's the impossibility of that. And that's part of the very nature of the adventure and both the severity of marriage. Is that we never really know what we're going to step into. If, for instance, you are a perfect match for your spouse before you were married, and you aren't, but if you were, just give it five years. They'll change. You'll change. And let's go scarier. You don't know how they'll change. Uh Let's go scarier. You don't know how you'll change. You'll both be different. You're going to go through crises that you can't even imagine. You're going to go through incredible joys. That you you wouldn't even know to foresee. It's why on the front end of marriage, because of its importance, you have to commit to it before you try it. Because if you tried it ahead of time, you would try it with a spirit of selfishness. Not a spirit of covenantal love. You should hear, as it were, the door of some bars clanging behind you when you say, I do. And you should throw away the key and get used to those bars. Because within the confines of those bars is something so beautiful that it can't be let out except within the confines of those parameters. It's so worth it to be on the inside of those bars that you're willing to say no to the life that you are actually leaving behind. Here's really what's going on. Only when the beauty of the other and the new life of marriage becomes so compelling to you that you are willing to face the pain of leaving all you've ever known behind, will you embrace the commitment of marriage, and only then will you begin to experience its glory and joy. Now this happens not just at the moment where you make vows, but it happens throughout the course of your marriage. You are constantly, in one way, shape, or form, going back to your marriage in covenant vows. Because in that moment of committing, you're saying, wow, we did it. We're in this thing now. And then by a week or two in, you'll be like, I don't know why we did this thing. And the only way to continue to move into the commitment of that marriage and to experience its glory and joy is to continue to go further into the parameter of the love of the person. To not look at the person as they are there to wait on you hand and foot. But that you are there to serve them in the way that Christ has so faithfully served His church. It's only in the moments that you become so self-forgetful. And so sacrificial of the other. With no strings attached or expectations that you will receive. That in that moment you will begin to experience the freedom, the joy, and the glory of marriage. Because it's in that moment that you're beginning to look a little bit like Jesus. A little bit like Jesus. You see, when you say, I love you no matter what, and I'm not going anywhere, no matter what happens in this life, better or worse, sickness of health, rich or poor, I'm not going anywhere. Why? Because whatever situation I'm in and whatever other option might be out there, none of it compares to being in relationship with you. None of it compares To experiencing the life in relationship with you. Now, I hope that when you hear me say it that way, you can hear the echo of the gospel in the midst and in the depth of the marriage. Because I'm not really talking about your spouse. And at the end of the day, I'm not really talking about your marriage. If you're really looking at each other and saying, You are my life, we have issues. Idolatrous issues, terrible enmeshment. Bad things are going to happen if your spouse becomes your idol. But when Paul speaks about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he makes it very clear that the picture of your relationship in marriage is really not about you while simultaneously being about you. What do I mean? He, After quoting Genesis 2.24... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He says this in verse 32 of Ephesians 5. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means for those of you who are married in this room today, it means that your marriage is a picture of the divine marriage. You are a living analogy. The gospel is not the analogy of your marriage. You are the analogy of the gospel. The gospel is primary. Jesus is first. His bride is first. You're the living analogy of what is the real marriage. And have you wondered then why marriage hasn't fully satisfied you? Well, wonder no more. Because you were not made for the marriage that you're in. You were made for the better marriage of which you are only an analogy. Only a word picture, only a visual expression of the marriage that you were made for with the Lord Jesus Christ. The one that you so desperately need. Well, maybe you say today, well, you should know my spouse. They don't look much like a picture of Christ in relationship to the gospel. I'm sure that's true. And I bet they say the same about you. And you know what that speaks to? The need for the gospel. The need for the marriage. Do you see, when you're having the greatest moment of your married life, and intimacy is amazing, and fellowship is rich, and it's just like you're finishing each other's sentences... And everything's just seeming to be go just right. In that moment, you're just a faint resemblance of what you will one day be in relationship and unity with Christ. And in the moments where your marriage is just terrible. And you can't find your way out of a paper bag together. It's in that moment that you're in need of the marriage of Jesus so desperately. In both places, each spouse can take each other to their better spouse. Do you know how you care? For your husband wives. By showing your neediness for Christ. And showing him his neediness for Christ. And taking him there. In love and in grace and service. Husband do you know how to love your wife. In the best possible way. It's inviting her and bringing her to her greater spouse. Showing your neediness and her neediness. And in love and care and service. Pointing her always to the Lord Jesus. Do you see that is the very nature of marriage. How do I know? Because at the very end. Of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. We're told that the church is a bride coming down out of heaven. Gloriously adorned. Beautiful on display. She, she is, she is the most, she's better than Eve. She's better than Eve could have have ever been. And she's made up of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. Every person who has ever trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Do you see, marriage, Jesus tells us it doesn't happen in heaven. We don't give and receive marriage in heaven. You know why? (laughs) Because all of heaven is marriage, all of it is marriage. How could you be given and received in marriage? You're already married. To the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your groom. And you are the beautiful bride. Which means, listen, singles, divorced, widows in this room. Don't you see what this means? Christ already in love with you has left his family. He left his father in the heavenly places. He left all the life that he had ever known from eternity past. And you know what he did? He has pursued you by becoming man. He has pursued you by living a perfect life, utter service in every way that you possibly needed. And on the cross, he got down on one knee and he humbled himself. And he proposed to you in the glory of his love. And he said to you, for better or worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, I will never leave you Nor forsake you. And I'm here to tell you if you have thought that a man would do that so well, you are mistaken. If you have thought that a woman would do that and do it so well, you are mistaken. You, this day, in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, have already been married to him in faith. I'm not looking at anybody that's not married if you're in Christ today. And it's why the great hymn says the church is one foundation. As Jesus Christ, her Lord, she is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood he bought her. And for her life he died. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. We are all at various ages and stages and experiences with this adventure Rough and ragged and remarkable marriage as it can be, but all of us are headed here if we're in Christ, which causes us today to never despair, but to always hope and with the vision of the glory of the marriage of Christ to his church, inspire and spur us on to today love our spouse unto Christ or in our singleness in our widowhood, in our divorcee, to love Christ as the one true bridegroom of my soul. Because the day comes where all of us aren't married to those sitting around us. The day comes when all of us together are married to Jesus. Father in heaven, we long for that day. We long for the day when that marriage, prefigured in our marriage, Crafted at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and brought to completion in Revelation 21. We long for the day when we arrayed in those righteous robes that look like a wedding dress. Or before your throne of grace. And we see in glorious array a wedding, marriage, supper of the Lamb. And we sit with you and we enjoy the glory of what it means to be fully united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Through the power of your spirit right now, lift us up to behold the beauty of this, your word. And draw us further in and further up until all of us in bright array are gloriously around your throne, rejoicing in the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. For him we love and for him we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.